I got some news for you. Yeah? Yeah, I have left the Office of Information at the White House. What happened? Well, I... The, the, the situation at the, at the office changed a bit and you know I had done I'd been doing my thing but now the the situation is is different and the set of objectives is different and it's a, it's a good time for me to to move on so so you want to leave well uh, yeah I on the one hand I, I didn't really have a choice but on the other hand I really I think it's the best thing so I, I yeah I think it's it's his time to move on what do you mean you didn't have a choice you got does that mean you get fired well, we don't really we don't really have that word here in DC. It it's different. When when you see someone on the news and they they transition from one job to another, I mean, you don't really say that they got fired. It's just you know, the situation changes, different opportunities open up and and with the the White House has to go in a different direction right now, and so it was a good opportunity and time for me to move on. But if you didn't want to go, then, I mean, you can call it semantically whatever you want. Like, how is this not getting fired? I don't understand. WikiLeaks. You have lost your job because of WikiLeaks. Yeah, that's one way to put it. But it's, it's Are you good. in one of the cables or something? I don't really want to get into the details. No, seriously, are you in the cables? No, I'm not. Like in the cables, you're you're a leaker. Ben, I don't think we should talk about the details too much. But the important part is, I get to keep my security clearance. Why wouldn't you get to keep your security clearance? Well, again, I don't want to get tied up in the details, but just the good part of the picture is that I do. There is a revolving door that you've heard about between the government and. Dib companies. Dib. Defense industrial base. Sorry. And this is even since Obama took over. I mean, it hasn't changed much at all since Bush. There's just more information. More things are classified. And so it's, you got to have that clearance. I mean, you, I guess maybe you haven't been here in a while, but just if you go into the subway in D.C., there are, you know how in, in New York there's posters and stuff in the subway platforms and in the in the metro itself. Uh-huh. And you know like in the metro in DC there are posters, you know those illuminated posters for like Raytheon and SAIC, you know these huge defense contractors and there's even companies that are like recruiting companies or the posters up in the subway cars themselves, you know. Like, call us for jobs requiring a security clearance. There's a website called clearancejobs.com, even. And you just go in there, you log in, and you can look for jobs that require a security clearance. I mean, that's just that's just the way this town works now. You need to have a security clearance. Oh, man. I'm so sorry this happened. I'm so sorry. Buddy... Relax, man. It's fine. It's going to be fine. I am I'm actually very excited. I feel like this is a big opportunity. I I think my next move is I'm going to do my own startup. What? Yeah. You know like 
the internet startup thing. I, I, I missed that whole thing. While these kids were inventing like eBay and Facebook and Google, I was running around Afghanistan getting my ass shot off, you know? I mean, I think the idea of hanging out in a loft with a bunch of computers and iPads and hot chicks, that sounds great. Okay, so what do you imagine you and the iPads and the hot chicks doing? Well, here's the thing. Did you follow what just went down with net neutrality? I mean, a little bit, but it's kind of complicated. Yeah, that's true. It it is complicated. But bottom line, basically, the FCC just handed corporate America the keys to the Internet. It's not that bad, is it? Well, think of it this way. Right now, all they're thinking of doing is creating a Internet fast lane and an Internet slow lane. Okay, but I mean, think about it. How much of a stretch is it until we have the Fox Lane and the Disney Lane. You really think that something like that will happen to the internet? Uh, hey, anything could happen, right? But now is definitely the time to get into the lane business. So here is my billion dollar idea. You ready? Uh huh. The secure lane. Five times since she spoke to me last. Congratulate me, I won every fucking case. To the degree that I'm going to go back and I'm going to sue the court for wasting my time. Why is your life always so crazy? I don't know. I mean, I know, but don't you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Am I being recorded? Yes. Then I can't tell you the other good thing. Can you what? pause? Yes. Sugar mama. What? I tell you, I don't even have to work anymore because the last time I worked, I met a sugar mama on set. Sugar mama? And by the way, I'm recording again. It's a stupid show. It's called Tara, the United States of Tara, and it was a cattle call, which I usually don't do, but I'll take whatever I can get. It's like at a stupid uh, baseball game, a stadium, and you always get the worst people there. And there was this girl. I kind of liked her because she was crazy, and she was flirting with me, which... I kind of, like, got into because no one's flirted with me for a while, even though she was, you know, whatever. How old is she? She's my age, 50. What a dish. But she kept talking even when they were saying rolling. So they said, please come down here. And they were going to throw her out. So I I followed her because I thought it was mean that they were going to, you know, because this is how her life goes. She's a crazy girl, you know. What is she going to do? The PA and the assistant director knew me. 
And I said, I know, she's, she's just really talkative, and, you know, I made little eyes, like, you know, she's crazy. So then they got mad at me, because, like, you know, they have no loyalty. They said, you could leave too, sir. Like, all of a sudden, they don't know my name is Peter, and they always knew that, sir. And I said, all right, well, I don't want to cause any disturbance, and it, it looks like she shouldn't be by herself, so I'll take her back to her house. So then we get to her car, and I couldn't believe it. She has one of those expensive cars. I can't tell you the... I don't know cars, but it was a brand new car. So it's like, I was talking to her, like, you do extra work and you drive this? Is this yours? Oh, yeah. And I didn't realize until I brought her to her house that, you know, she's very wealthy. I'm retired, she said. She was just kind of keeping it to herself. And then I went inside, and her house was a mess. And I, she had all this equipment, like stereo, amplifier, she had a dubbing deck, but the thing is, when was the last time I saw a dubbing deck? They were this in the 70s. It was like sparkling new, and so was the, the old turntable and the am amplifier. None of it was hooked up, and she had an old TV, not a plasma or anything. It was in an entertainment system, and none of it was hooked up. And I asked her, how long have you lived here? 18 years. Like, I thought she just moved in or something. And I still don't know why does she have all this equipment without any of it being hooked up? I start hooking it up for her, and I tell her that I'll be her handyman because she's very flirtatious and all of this. And while I'm being her handyman, um, I told her, you know, the way I make money is I do uh, extra work, and I get a little money doing nude modeling at this art college down the street. So she's really interested in that. So she wants to know if uh, I would model for her, I realized, oh, I guess I can play this game for a while. And the, the game entails this, which is don't give them everything they want. Girls love having to wait for it. So I hooked up all her stuff for her. Then I left. And then, basically, she left me like a lot of messages in the middle of the night that I didn't listen to until the morning and erased them all. And I thought, yeah, what have I gotten myself into? And then I listened to it, like the last rambling message, and it was all about how she wants to kiss me and touch me. And I'll even give you money. I have some money, and I'd love to help you. I just want to help you. <laughs> oh, your tires are bald, and it's so unsafe how you're driving. I got four new tires plus alignment and all the stuff to my car, which is about $500. Plus, I got the gas bill and electricity all paid. The phone company. Remember how that's always getting shut off? Uh-huh. Not anymore. Maybe now I can get more than 500 minutes. <laughs> well, see, so you're basically milking this poor, deranged, lonely lady for her money. She's just on a lot of projects. She's fine. But I agree that she can give me a bath, which has to happen sometime next week. That's after about $1,500. She wants to give me a bath. Ugh. Am I taking advantage of her, or am I making her happy? She just tells me how happy I'm making her. She has no one else to spend money on. Imagine how sad. Can you imagine how many people in the naked city are sitting there on all this money that they can't use because there's something wrong with them and no one will be their friend? She has a sister in St. Louis that was her only contact, and she has some boyfriend that she keeps calling me his name from like 10 years ago. But that didn't work out. And then she keeps talking about him, but I I let her talk, but I don't really listen. Oh, God. Sometimes, though, 
she will get really lucid and she keeps talking about how she's 50 years old and she has never done anything. She feels bad about that. Like she thinks we have everything in common when we don't. But she she likes songs about changing the world and people doing things and she feels bad that she's never done anything. So she wants me to do things she said she wants to like manage me and she wants me to get haircut and wardrobe and real she thinks I'm the greatest actor and she's gonna help me be my agent and all this stuff. She just wants to help. So she will be happy because um, you know, I will be able to um, you know, give uh, her back something very great. I'm sure when I tell her I'm gay, it's not gonna even matter. You don't think that might make a difference? You know, I, I, I'm able to rise to attention no matter what. If it involves someone taking care of my bills. There's a new documentary film out about the life and music and legacy of singer-songwriter Phil Oakes. Writer Christopher Hitchens gets what I think is the best line. There was a difference between people who liked Bob Dylan. Anyone could like Bob Dylan. Everybody did. Um, and those who even knew about Phil Oaks. The joke was if, if you really wanted insightful political commentary that really dealt with the social issues rather than a kind of more generalized, more emotionally distant material, you went to Phil Oaks. One of the main aspects of Phil Oakes as a singer-songwriter was his commitment to uh, social justice. Ken Bowser is the director of the film, There But For Fortune. He was very big on uh, taking on bullies, whoever they were, whether they were governmental bullies or, or union bullies, he, he, uh, company bullies. He, 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 he liked to fight, and um, his music always reflected that. <laughs> In 1962, Phil Oakes moved to New York City. 1962 is also the year Bob Dylan released his first record. Around the night of the wild west, leaving the towns I loved the best. Thought I'd seen some ups and downs till I came into New York town. It was the right time and the right place. There was an incredible magnetism uh, in the early 60s that, that drew artists to Greenwich Village. Dylan and Phil and Eric Anderson and everybody else, and they were all uh, singer-songwriters. What made Phil and Dylan similar was they were the most political. 
That's Phil's brother and former manager, Michael Oakes. Phil went to Greenwich Village uh, to become the best singer-songwriter in the country, and then he met Dylan, he said, well, I'll settle for second best. The only time I ever met Dylan was when, when Phil was trying to organize the Broadside Singers, which was the concept to recreate the Almanac Singers, which was Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, uh, to create a new group of all the young singer-songwriters uh, and to, to raise money for Broadside Magazine, which was a, a pamphlet that was, print, that was publishing people like Phil and Dylan for the first time. And so Phil calls a meeting at the uh, Kettle of Fish, which is a restaurant above the uh, Gaslight, and everybody shows up. And Dylan's there, Buffy St. Marie, Patrick Skye, et cetera, et cetera. They're all there. Phil explains the idea, and they all agree except for Dylan. And Dylan said, not interested. You know, and, uh, and Phil said, no, Bobby, Bobby, I mean, just, 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 think, just think of all the songwriters this will inspire. And Bobby looks at him coldly and said, Phil, you think if I made the basketball team in high school, I'd be doing this shit? I think Phil felt he was part of a movement uh, where Dylan maybe felt he was separated and, and alone. Phil, I think, considered himself part of a larger movement, at least, which did, didn't exclude his ego from being in operation and wanting to be a star or any of that. But uh, it did, um, it, it kept him engaged in the political struggle. The different artistic and political sensibilities of Phil Oakes and Bob Dylan famously collided one afternoon in the back of Bob Dylan's limousine. It's one of those legendary rock and roll scenes. Here's Michael's version of what happened. To be corny, they say, if you, if you re remember the 60s, you weren't there. I, I was there, and my memory might be faulty, but the way I remember Phil telling me the story was um, uh, he, and, he and Bob were going somewhere in uh, limousine, and uh, and Dylan had played him. I I remembered it as as Dylan had played him uh, "Blonde on Blonde," um, and and uh, and Phil said Phil said he thought half of it was some of the best writing Bob had ever done, and half of it was mere filler. And Bob said, "Stop the car!" Threw Phil out of the car. Uh, it, it was winter, uh, and uh, they didn't speak for probably about four years after that. They didn't speak. The only real difference between the version Michael tells and the one most of Phil's friends and colleagues relate is the name of the song that they were fighting about. Most folks are pretty sure it was Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window, which is not on Blonde on Blonde, but rather a single that Dylan released in 1965. Michael also leaves out what Dylan supposedly said to Phil. You're not a folk singer. You're a journalist. Get out of the car. Here's an excerpt from the film. Dylan despises what I write. I've talked to him at some length about this. And, you know, he, he can't accept what I'm doing because it's political and to his mind it's therefore bullshit because I'm not writing about myself and my deepest emotions, he feels. In other words, he thinks that I could be you know, much more honest with myself. Oh, I'm just a student, sir, and only want to learn. Phil was so vulnerable to him, but Dylan would play with him, you know, the way a cruel person might when you know that you have the full affection of someone else and you, you toy with it. And that went on over and over with Phil and Dylan, and it was, um, it was a very big part of, uh, of Phil's pathology, as it were, I believe. 
father, you'd like to be my dad. Here's the man I most respect in the world, Dylan, telling me this. And, and yet it's been a help to me in a sense because it's made me question what, 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 what are my reasons for writing these songs? Am I complete phony like Dylan thinks? Is that true? The big falling out with Dylan was over. Can you please crawl out your window? Dylan said, what do you think? And Phil said, it's shit. And Dylan stopped the car, didn't he, in the snow and said to Phil, get out. He was such a prick. One year later, Phil Oakes performed at Carnegie Hall. It was his first big show, and the hall sold out, just like it did for Dylan in 1963. Some of the performances are later released on a concert album, and you can hear on the intro to Ringing a Revolution, Phil joking about his relationship with Dylan. We'll do a song then about revolution. This is a fictional song, a cinematic song. As a matter of fact, the song is so cinematic that it's been made into a movie. John Wayne plays Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson plays God. I play Bobby Dylan. The young Bobby Dylan. Phil does that a lot. I mean, I mean, almost every concert he makes a joke about Dylan. And I think he's doing that because there were too many uh, really stupid comparisons uh, by press, etc., comparing the two of them. And, uh, oh, Phil stayed true to the, to the politics. D- Dylan sold out. Phil, now, this is, this is empirical because Phil himself wrote article after article about how great Dylan's changes were and how dare you tell an artist, uh, oh, yeah, well, Picasso never should have done that cubist garbage, you know. I mean, come on. An artist is supposed to grow. Phil understood that, da-da-da, and, uh, and constantly defended Dylan, although that kind of embarrassed Dylan. I mean, I mean there was, an, there was a, a uh, TV interview interview uh, out of uh, San Francisco where, where Dylan's uh, asked about, uh, you know, what about th- this thing Phil Oakes wrote about you? He said, I don't care what Phil Oakes says about me. You know, so, so there, there is that competitiveness, mm. etc. But, uh, but no, Phil always made fun of Dylan uh, as, uh, b- because I think too many people uh, ridic- ridiculously try to build Phil up by putting Dylan down, and that is just total bull. If I took one thing away from Ken Bowser's film, it was just how difficult it was for Phil Oakes to have a career, a life, a story, independent of Bob Dylan. Ken Bowser told me that at one point, he was even thinking of calling his film The Other Man. You know, Phil is always going to be in the shadow of Dylan. But, you know, it's interesting. No one goes, gee, Gordon Lightfoot is in the, in, in the shadow of Dylan or, or Joan Baez is in the shadow of Dylan. Nobody else, no one else makes it part of the narrative. And somehow Phil wound up being in the shadow of Dylan. No one else's narrative is tied to that. When we made this film, it was never about saying that Phil is as, uh, as good or second best or 18th best. It was about how this guy's life and times were emblematic of what happened in the 60s uh, and what happened in the 70s, that his life was really a mirror of the times. That was as interesting to us as a story. It was never about comparing, you know, this artist to this artist. Chosen for a challenge that is hopelessly hard And the only single sign is the sighing of the stars But to the silence of distance they are sworn So dance, dance, dance 
Of course, Phil Oaks has a story, a career, and a life independent of Dylan, and he really was determined to make it on his own terms. Phil's formula for success was one part Elvis Presley and one part Che Guevara. He ironically titled his 1970 album Greatest Hits, and on the cover he donned a gold lame suit. But the star thing just never happened. He started drinking more and more, which made his manic depression worse and worse. He drove his friends off one by one. And with hindsight, you can see him hurtling toward that tragic day in 1976. But on September 11th, 1973, the Chilean government was overthrown by a military coup. And for a moment, Phil Oakes sprung back to life. The CIA basically broke the law and, uh, and, and arranged this coup. I mean, then Phil was the first person publicly to, to make that statement uh, and to say that, you know, this, this, was, this was not an, uh, a military coup. This was a CIA coup. Okay. And so when this happened, it was like, I have to do something about this. And so he, just, he decided he wanted to do this gigantic concert at, uh, at Madison Square Garden to, make, to raise money for the Chilean refugees. And uh, so he, he gets Pete Seeger to agree and Arlo Guthrie and Dennis Hopper, and, and they take out these ads, and uh, it's a total disaster. I mean, they're, not, they're, not, they're selling a few hundred tickets, and yeah, <laughs> it's like, so they're not going to raise money for the refugees. They're going to cost the, the refugees money. <laughs> and Phil, coincidentally was at one of the clubs in the village, and he runs into Dylan. And, and he says, uh, hey, Bubby, how'd you like a job singing almost for nothing? <laughs> yeah, quoting one of Dylan's songs, and uh, Dylan says, uh, you know, what are you talking about? And so then they got together later. Phil explained the whole Yende story, and, and Dylan said, uh, okay, maybe. You know, and said, but don't tell anybody, Phil. Phil said, okay, it's a deal. And as soon as Dylan left, Phil goes out to BAI, goes in the air and says, and Bob Dylan's going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the whole concert sold out. I imagine this had to be a really strange moment for Phil, because on the one hand, he pulled off this amazing benefit concert, but the whole thing came down to star power, and it was a power that was different from his own. radio show job, I thought Nick and I could stay friends. Like I thought that we could talk now and then, you know, we've always been kind of creative collaborators and grown a lot from, from talking about our craft with each other. So I never wanted that friendship to end, but we were on the phone maybe two, three weeks after I moved here, two, three weeks after we broke up. And he mentioned a really cute girl at the party, <laughs> but how he shouldn't, you know, be with her because she was moving away and 
she had a boyfriend already, but it was an open relationship or something. And uh, and I was like, dude, too soon. <laughs> Please don't tell me that. But like, he gave me those little bits of details. And then I started noticing this girl on his Facebook wall, like almost immediately afterwards. And like all of the details lined up. Like I saw that she was leaving for another place pretty soon, that she was in an open relationship. Like she had brown hair and sweepy bangs like me. And we had some mutual friends. And I just like, that's so, kind of obsessed. So you are already cyber stalking your ex. Well, she commented on everything he did on his Facebook wall for at least two weeks, like just consistently. Either it was like a like or it was like a full on comment. I think like the, one of the tipping points was when he tagged like a coffee mug that he was looking at with her name on it. And that's kind of a way of like either imagining her presence or being sentimental about like something relating to her. And it just was like that was the tipping point <laughs> for me. I don't know why. It's so trivial. So what did you do? I emailed him like, hey, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to like restrict you from some Facebook stuff. Like, it's just getting kind of hard for me. And he was like, no problem. But the thing about Facebook is that I can protect like him from seeing me, but I can't protect myself from snooping into him or snooping into the people who know him. So the only way in the end for us to like completely cut ties was for, for him to unfriend me, which he ended up doing. And that was the last we, we spoke. But I can still see when he changes his profile picture. So I still check that. What do you mean? Like if I type in his name, even though I can't see his profile and even though we're no longer friends, I can see what his Facebook photo is. So that's the extent of our contact now. And how often do you check that? Daily. <laughs> Embarrassing though. So are you meeting people in Kansas City? Well, I meet a new guest on our radio show every day. You know, every day we have someone from like the mayor on the show or we'll have like a financial advisor or dating expert. So, so that's a cool way to meet people. But you should you should not date people who want to go on your show because it's not for real. <laughs> you, you've tried it out? I don't know. This, this one guy runs a local PR firm here where he does these like social media campaigns for potato chip companies where he takes lots of pictures of people with their potato chips. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. This sounds like a real winner, Andrea. I, I guess. I don't know. He has this really cool like loft-style apartment in mm. New York. He's a photographer. And it's kind of crazy. Every time he tags a photo of me on Facebook, the caption... It's like my full job title before my name. And that's how you know he's not really your friend or someone who you should be dating because like, I'm not just Andrea, I'm radio show producer, Andrea. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, has anything happened with this guy? Yeah, well, I, I spent New Year's with him. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just him, it was him and another guy who'd like to come on our show. But <clears throat> it was weird, they started kind of fighting. About what? Over their phones, actually. The PR guy with the potato chips campaign who does the social media stuff, he is like Mr. iPhone. He was like DJing the party from his iPhone the whole time. Some people at his party were like Apple retail specialists and stuff. He's like Mr. Apple product. And the other guy, he's um assistance analyst for the army and uh, and is so serious about his Android phone 
Like he tries to convert everyone he meets. And there was a moment where he saw the PR guy DJing with his phone and then pulls out his Android and starts comparing and showing him his app. And it was like, it's like an app attack. Android guy, he started showing off Google Goggles. Google Goggles is this application where you can kind of photograph things and Google will tell you what they are. So we started taking some books off of Apple guys' shelves, photographing them, looking them up. Um, he even tried to take a picture of the cat. Meanwhile, Apple guy is showing Android guy that his phone takes way better pictures. Like he's been using this phone for a lot of his PR campaigns. He loves to photograph his cat like every day. And between that, he would like flip over and then change the song, then dance a little. I think they were both trying to impress me uh, with their knowledge of their phones. So they were going back and forth with this for like a long time. And I went over and I talked to other people and I went back and they were still talking about it. And it was getting to become, it was almost midnight and I kind of had to make up my mind at that point, you know, who was gonna get the smooch. Who won this epic battle? The iPhone guy. I mean, the iPhone is just, you know, really good looking. Uh, I like its size. But, you know, also Nick had an Android phone. I mean, he didn't just have an Android phone. I mean, I it was in our bed every night. It was part of that relationship. So I was just ready to move on. didn't used to be so difficult. Telephone girls were highly trained, uh, had very melodious voices. They went to a special school for telephone girls. She replaced the telephone boy, which is the original. <laughs> They decided the boys were too chaotic and uh, mischievous, so they replaced them with girls, sometimes kind of like rolling out new software in the 1890s. And what they did uh, is you would pick up your telephone and they would say, what number, please? And uh, they would physically connect your line physically to someone else's line, either in your town, the country, eventually the whole world. So the power is All in the right, switch. Give me the Omaha rooting station. See if we can put our calls through their switchers. Let's get this console running now. Tim Wu is the guy who coined the term net neutrality, and he's the author of the book The Master Switch. He's interested in the telephone girls of the Internet. The most obvious candidate in our time is the search engine, frankly, Google. They're not the only one. Um, one very obvious one, the one that has been a source of power for a very long time, are the connections, the actual physical pipes or wires that connect the home to the, to the network, uh, mostly controlled either by phone company or cable. Uh, metaphorically, when you think about uh, 
the way you might use your mobile phone, for example, what app you're going to download, then the marketplace has a Switch-like aspect to it. it. Basically, the Switch is deciding what your choices are, how you get places. Whoever controls what you get to still has a lot of power. For Tim Wu, the key to understanding the power of these switches is to understand what he calls the cycle. Every 20 or 30 years, someone invents something which is profoundly new in the communications field. And uh, some of the examples of telephone, radio broadcasting, um, television, things like that, profoundly new. And you have an early era of profound optimism, almost utopianism surrounding these technologies. This idea that we have discovered something which is going to solve society's problems for once and for all. Now, you should recognize that this is the way we talk about the Internet today. But this is also the way people used to talk about other information technologies, like the telephone, television, cinema, even radio. The degree of optimism surrounding radio would not be exceeded really until the Internet in the, in the 1990s. The sense that we had discovered this scientific marvel which finally put people into connection in a way which we had never imagined before. Many people thought it was must be the work of God, that we had finally found a way to connect humanity in a way. And after this, it was clearly going to change politics, solve our political problems, bring the nation together as one. Even people would say would make the entire world a single united being in a sense. All of our brains connected by the ma power and magic of radio. Um, today we talk on our cell phones. <laughs> it's not quite the same level. But you know, that early hobbyist optimistic spirit, it doesn't show up in economics journals, but it is what drives these early inventions. This idea of, wow. So I, I, the upshot of this is that we sometimes tell the story of communications as if it's just a business, but really it is about very idealistic ideas that come into the marketplace, start as crazy utopian projects, and eventually become industries. Every communication technology of the 20th century goes through the cycle. And while there is no set script or stage directions, there are many constants. For example, every cycle has its business moguls, and every cycle as a supporting role for the government. There's an incredible power in these networks, and they attract people the same way people are attracted to Washington politics. They attract a certain kind of personality who wants to run a private kingdom. So someone comes along, a strong man, a mogul, a defining mogul, who says, we will deliver a better product and give the American people what they want. The most helpful thing for a mogul in that position is to get government on its side. And in fact, historically, government has often agreed and said, you are right. We agree with you. It will be better for our country if you are a monopolist. AT&T is the classic example, given a monopoly in the 1910s, lasts for 70 years. Radio in the 1920s, uh, big radio, the, the, the plan to have higher quality chain or, or broad uh, network-based radio, NBC and CBS, uh, essentially gains the... Uh, cooperation, indeed the active assistance of the Federal Communications Commission in, re, in, in refashioning radio from a small, amateur, chaotic medium into a single, centralized set of networks. Understanding the cycle, Tim Wu says, is crucial if we hope to understand the big question. Is the Internet different? It is no question when the Internet's major technologies invented in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that it was unlike any other kind of communications technology ever envisioned. 
mainly by its ex- extremely decentralized nature. And it's a f- fact that no one entity really has ultimate power over the network. The question is whether those design innovations are really enough or meaningful enough to enable the internet to avoid the same powers of consolidation, centralization, and monopoly control, which all of its ancestors eventually fell into. And uh, it's a complicated story. It's one that is the question of our times. If there is a big question of our times, to me it is, is the internet really different or fated to go back to what happened to everyone else? Is the internet different? The argument that it is different relies on a few things. First of all, that the inventions, the ideas behind it are too explosive and too powerful once out of the box to put back in. The people, customers, humans, citizens are used to the idea that they go get information when they want to. And the idea of someone getting in the way of that is just crazy to them. And that is impossible to undo. Another idea is that Surrounding the internet is not just an ethos, but an entire infrastructure of funding, uh, entrepreneurship, which is hard to displace. So if you have a monopolist like, let's say, Google or Facebook, um, unlike 100 years ago, where they would just continue to dominate, uh, as soon as they start to falter, funding and entrepreneurs will go towards a challenger. You know, that we've created an environment some, somehow... Uh, in the Silicon Valley ethos where you create a giant and then you destroy it and as opposed to keep supporting it. And that is just different and it's unless you get rid of venture capital financing and entrepreneurship, that that will not change. But I would note that every generation, whenever I read history books, every period of time, people think something is different about their time. There's no possible way that our situation could be like anyone else's. And I think that could be true of the internet. Many things have not changed. The laws of economics have not changed. Companies still derive enormous advantages from economies of scale and uh, uh, network effects. A company like Facebook is popular and dominant because everyone else uses Facebook. Exactly the same with AT&T in the 1910s. Why did people use AT&T phones? Because everyone else was on the AT&T network. Facebook has exactly the same thing. Giant brands that everybody trusts with enormous economies of scale, a company like Google or a company like um, ABC in the old days, not so much difference. In other words, the ancient economic forces which lead to natural monopoly have not changed and will not change. The other thing that does not and will not change is human nature. And when there has been information and communications, there has been a will to power, a desire to control it that has not gone away. The temptation to be the man in charge of a communications empire is extremely strong and intoxicating. The CEOs of major information firms are not ordinary people. I met Jerry Levine, the old head of AOL, uh, Time Warner, and he said, being a CEO of a media company is a form of mental illness. There, there, is a, there is something intoxicatingly powerful about controlling what people are exposed to. 
what information people get because in some small way that is influencing who they become. And I, that has not gone away. And as long as that temptation is there, the temptation to take a monopoly will be great. And whoever achieves an internet monopoly comes into a power that is greater even than that on the old phone networks or the radio networks because now there is one universal network. You have one network which unifies everything. If you control that, you control everything. And so there is a temptation to seize control of the one ring that controls them all, so to speak. But if this cycle is inevitable, what will be fundamentally different? I mean, it'll look the same, right? We'll be walking around with these powerful phones, computers in our hands. We'll still have screens surrounding us. I'm kind of wondering if you can just paint us a picture of how different the world will be. Sure. So if, if the history repeats itself, um, we can expect a period similar to the 30s, 40s, 50s, after radio optimism, where you have probably a lot less random content you run into uh, on the internet, more uh, streamlined. And in fact, I think the American population will sort itself if, if this is any guide. You'll, you'll have sort of an, something of an Apple nation, more of a Google nation, more of a Facebook, depending on whether you care about your friends, whether you care about everything, uh, getting Hollywood content as easily as possible. That would be Apple, Facebook, friends, Google is you still sort of believe more in the ideals of an open internet and a bit more randomness. So you could see the internet kind of self-sorting into different groups of people who are, are somewhat uh, separate. You know, forget blue state, red state, and talk about uh, Apple, Google, Facebook states uh, as being different uh, people. And I think that will be a very profound change from what the original ideals of the internet are, is a what I'm calling the big three future of the network. Part of what's made the internet interesting for me or was once the defining characteristic is that it was a place where whether you actually reached anyone or not, it was always possible to start your own little thing and be heard somewhat. And it's, all, it's sort of absurd, but uh, you know, my blog or anyone's blog um, roughly gets equal treatment um, or historically to, to the blog of someone very wealthy or a major news organization like CNN. You may not have as much visitors, but you basically have the same thing. You have a web page, they have a web page. <laughs> and there's this rough equality, which has always been the, the kind of hallmark of the internet. Uh, it's a very 70s kind of thing, you know, this sort of radical equality between websites that has been the, the internet. It's very frustrating to people who either are famous or rich, uh, not people, but also entities that, you know, that some dude's traffic, a site gets more traffic than um, in New York, it's an established entity which thinks it has a lot to say. Um, it has upended a lot of hierarchies in that sense. And the question is whether it will be a force that continues to do that, whether the internet will in some ways be have that public character or not. And I think that is what we could lose. Some people will celebrate. Some people will be like, you know, this internet was just a bunch of chaos and, and junk, and I'm glad it's going back to a little more controlled, planned, uh, straightforward future. But, you know, you lose something there. You lose the vision of it as an agency of free speech. Yeah, but how do we know when the battle's over? For example, there's a lot of people right now getting behind the concept of net neutrality. But even if you look at what happened in Washington recently, it doesn't even seem like that's really going to solve the problem. Like, how will we know that we've won and the Internet is different? If we look back over the next 10 years from now, and in fact the Internet has not really closed, if 
today's monopolists are in the dustbin or have fundamentally been unseated and it continues to have this open characteristics, we will know. I would say a decade. Um, most of these, when I look at these cycles, typically there's about 10 or 20 years of openness at maximum. The internet became popular in 95, we're 15 years into it. So if 25 years later, it is still an open, vibrant, innovative medium, we will know that perhaps things have flipped and perhaps communications has changed in a lasting way. Of course, nothing will ever change forever. Forces of centralization are power. They're, they're, they're never going to go away. Just like no democracy has ever permanently solved the problem of not becoming a dictatorship. Right? There's always a possibility of a democracy flipping into a dictatorship. And I think that's exactly how we should think about it. It takes an effort. Galen Smith lives in Brooklyn and works in Manhattan. And so he spends a lot of his time riding the subway and waiting for the subway. Living in New York, you know, you see a lot of graffiti. And in the, the time period in which I've lived here, which is from like the 90s till now, it hasn't been real big um, classic 70s and 80s train murals. And it hasn't really been that, that famous New York style that really you know, got the ball rolling all around the world. It's quick tags and quick throw-ups, not so much big pieces. The majority of these quick tags end up on the posters on the subway platform. You know, the, the uh, knocked-out teeth, the zombie eyes, I call, you know, the, the blacked-out or cut-out eye sockets, um, you know, your mustaches all the way from Chaplin Hitler over to uh, Salvador Dali style. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer, and over time I got, I got past the initial feeling of blur. And then something really jumped out at me, in, in a way the most obvious things, like there's penises drawn almost on every single poster. Galen Smith is the author of New York Dick, a book about the subway penis. A primitive little symbol to be sure, but one he believes is giving voice to our true feelings about our media landscape. These posters are, are ubiquitous. If you if haven't traveled in New York, you may not realize that they're on practically all subway platforms, and there are dozens of them. They're all over the place. They're, in, they're, in your, they're literally in your space. They're about the height you are, and they're large. Very unlike print ads, and of course nothing like videotype stuff. And you're sort of bombarded with them all the time. And even if you don't think of yourself as being bombarded, you're hanging with them a lot. And it can get really tedious, especially if there's one you don't like. But in this space, in this context, you really can make your own counter-argument, your own counter-statement, and everyone knows what you mean. How is this different than, say, like a conventional authored uh, graffiti tag? Well, I think one of the things that is, makes it different, and for me makes it really interesting, is that it's, 
it's even more folkloric. There's no, there's no authorship. There's no getting famous, well-known. You're not even really getting a lot of cred with your, your friends. I mean, your friends may have been here giggling with you when you did it, but it's not really like you're you know, going all city with these dinguses. No one's claiming this is art. Everyone knows it's a little stupid, but there's something about the idiocy that is part of, the, part of why it works so well. And like it, in our culture, a way to show absolute disrespect is to draw this penis. It's like that's a very New York-y conversation, or at least how New Yorkers like to see their, themselves. Very aggressive, moderately clever, and really sort of a disrespectful. But honestly disrespectful. The, the, the person drawing the penis didn't start this conversation. They didn't think they were winning and dominating this communication. The advertiser and the, the system did. And so it's a way of putting some brakes on this, this rampant and constant um, getting over on one that advertising seems to feel that it's doing. Now, I, I like advertising okay. I find it very interesting in a way, and some ads I think are really fun. But a lot of them aren't. Every time I see one of these penises now, I get kind of excited. It's like finally proof that there are tons of people who feel the same way I do about our ever-encroaching commercial world. Tons of people. And they're all saying the same thing. Screw you. Really, it's awesome. This is actually happening now with real people making real comments um, in a real space. And it's more of a community than, than you might realize. And in New York City subways, there's potentially thousands of people that can join in that conversation or can just witness it and give that sort of you know, a little bit of a chuckle, a little bit of a nod. Like, you know, I'm not saying I agree, but I, I know what you mean. This episode of Too Much Information is called What a Difference Makes. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and featured Ken Bowser, Michael Oakes, Tim Wu, Galen Smith, and TMI regulars Peter Choice, Andrea Salenzi, and Chris. You can listen to the TMI archive anytime as well as subscribe to the TMI podcast on our playlist page, which you can find at WFMU. Dot org.